Hi folks, and welcome to the Empowering Dietitians podcast, where each week I explore a different topic to help you feel more confident and connected to your work as a dietitian. I'm your host, Jess Sertikoff Romola, a registered dietitian, dietitian supervisor, and owner of Empowering Dietitians, where I work with practitioners just like you who are tired of the status quo in our field and are ready to reclaim their confidence, passion, and purpose. Today, I'm welcoming fellow dietitian Alyssa Toomey onto the show. Alyssa is a certified eating disorder specialist and supervisor and registered yoga teacher who uses trauma-sensitive somatic work and embodiment alongside intuitive eating to support her clients. And I have to say, I could have talked to Alyssa for hours about her approach. We chat a lot about embodiment and mindfulness, both for clients and for you as a provider along with her thoughts on and experience with supervision for dietitians. So without further ado, let's bring in Alyssa. Welcome to the podcast, Alyssa. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Yeah, I'm really excited for this. When you reached out and told me more about your approach and what you do, I could not have been more excited to get you scheduled for this recording. We're going to be talking about a lot of things that I'm really passionate about, and I'm thinking that you're going to um, be able to share a lot of unique perspectives with everyone listening. So uh, with that like very cryptic teaser, how about we get started with the basics of who you are and what you do? Certainly. Thank you. So I am a registered dietitian and a certified eating disorder specialist and supervisor. And I feel like the list continues. I'm also um, a yoga teacher and almost done with my 500 hours, um, have one more module to go and really excited about that. Amazing. And yeah, thank you. And I, um, you know, this was a career change for me. So I've only been in this field gosh, I guess a little over 10 years now, if I'm doing the math quickly mm -hmm. in my head and just love it. Feel super lucky to be here. Really, you know, grateful to help people to create that peaceful relationship with food in their body. Yeah, that's fantastic. And I love hearing that. And now I'm, I'm really curious because what we're going to be talking a lot about today is mindfulness and embodiment. Did your interest in yoga kind of form that interest in mindfulness and embodiment, vice versa? How did that journey happen for you, so to speak? Yeah. So, I mean, the truth is I had moved to the town that I live in, in New Jersey, and I had two very young children, didn't know anyone. My next door neighbor came over lovely and was like, Hey, you want to go to a yoga class? And I was like, okay. Right. <laughs> and, right. In an effort to meet a friend really anything yeah. else. And I was all in, I loved it. It was very different than anything I had ever experienced before. There was a sense of coming into my body in a really, you know, easeful way. And this kind of internal empowerment that I had never felt in any other athletic endeavor that I had been part of and really just, you know, started going on retreats when I could. And then when that studio decided to offer their first teacher training, I was like, oh my gosh, sign me up. I want to be part of the beginning of something. Yeah. And um, I've just felt that in my own life, that has been incredibly meaningful. And then over time have, you know, sort of started dabbling with putting that into some of the work that I was doing with clients. Um, and I found, right, like so many of the people that we work with are highly 
intelligent and if they could think their way out of their eating disorders or their disordered relationships with food and body, they would have done it already. Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, and, and I think dietitians can relate to that too. I think if we could think our way through our problems, we would be great. Absolutely. So when I started sort of expanding the like, tell me about your thoughts, tell me about the feelings related to what's going on, but then also tell me about the sensations, what's coming up in your body related to this. It was like, okay, there's the, you know, the additional kind of special sauce to help maybe move things, you know, in a, in a more kind direction with people and recognizing that that's, can be really intimidating for people take a very trauma-informed approach to that. And, you know, sometimes it's like a lot of conversation about like, what would it feel like for us to start talking about getting into your body and certainly always do that work in concert with therapists um, to make sure that, you know, we're creating a safe container. Yes. And I want to come back to that. But first, um, I want to rewind a tiny bit because uh, when we say the term embodiment, I, I use that term quite a bit when I'm working with dietitians, but it's one that I find that a lot of us aren't really familiar with. So real basic level, you mentioned, you know, understanding and becoming aware of the sensations in your body. Is that how you personally would define embodiment or are there other things that you would add to that? Yeah, I mean, that's certainly, you know, kind of one of the major ways that I would explain that to people. Often when I'm explaining it, I will talk about this idea of like, you know, when we're cold, our body shivers as a way to let us know that we should put on a sweatshirt and use that because there's generally no shame, you know, related to something like that. So that can be sort of an easy entry point for people and then talk about what that feels like. It's, you know, I think about it as sort of like a mind body breath connection Mm -hmm. as well as this way of staying present. And that doesn't mean that, you know, I think some people get confused. In fact, I had a client say to me just yesterday, like, I can't do mindfulness. I can't quiet my thoughts. And I was like, you know, clear my head. I think Mm -hmm. were the words. And that's, and I, you know, so we use that as a conversation to say, well, what if the idea was like that you're just with your thoughts and maybe we can create a little bit of space between thought and response to that thought, or maybe we can even interrogate that thought to say, does this really resonate for me? Um, And, you know, I use this idea of like, if you're standing on the train platform, and the train that is going not to your destination comes by, you don't get on that train. You wait until the train that is going to your destination. That's such a good analogy of it. I love thinking of it that way. And and I will say that that was a big change when I first started meditating because I was always the person that was like, I can't meditate. It's just not for me. Like I'm, I just can't do it. Um, And I tried and I had done different things and it never worked. And then I was listening to someone talk about meditation and they said it's not about quieting your mind it's about not going down the rabbit hole of your mind and you can it's kind of this constant like you get your mind wanders off and then you pull it back and then it wanders off and you pull it back and this almost kind of a tug of war I don't love that that description of it but that's kind of what it feels like and when I realized that that I wasn't actually meditating wrong, I was actually doing everything that I needed to be doing. It made it so much easier. I wasn't overthinking it. It was less stressful and I was able to really enjoy it. Um, So I always encourage the dietitians that I work with to, to think about mindfulness that way too. So I appreciate you saying that. 
Yeah. And, and I think that gives so much permission, right? Yes. People, that there is no wrong way to be doing this. And in fact, I was lucky enough years ago to study with Sharon Salzberg, who is, you know, sort of one of the gurus in our um, culture and up at Kripalu, which was like such a wonderful experience. And she, you know, sitting up there as this person that we all look towards. And she was like, oh, you better believe I end up in like aisle 10 of the grocery store. And the magic is when I bring myself back yes. to the moment. And I liked that idea. It's like the, you know, that even people that we maybe would aspire to be like in terms of their meditation practice are saying like, I'm a human and I get pulled away too. Mm -hmm. And in fact, that was co-led by um, a professor at Harvard, that workshop. And he was saying, in fact, like, it's not only the magic that we feel, it's the magic that they've been able to show on functional MRIs. So it's really cool. And especially for dietitians, as you mentioned, maybe we're thinkers and mm -hmm. perfectionists in some ways. Sometimes like I can get really excited about this sort of more I don't know, like woo aspect of things, oh, but yeah, I also like recognize that a lot of people like that, you know, more evidence-based mm -hmm. so when you can offer both as a starting point for people, I think that can be helpful too. Absolutely. Especially when we've spent so many years being taught like evidence-based practice, we're looking at the research, does it support it? All of those things. It can help us get into it to realize that this isn't just like woo feel good stuff. It can be that, um, but there is evidence that supports real benefits to incorporating this in. Yeah. I, I agree completely. Yeah. And I think that can be helpful for our clients too, who might be skeptical. Yes. <laughs> um, right. And I used to, and I have to say I've evolved so much as a yoga teacher because I used to sort of feel that like, if you're coming to yoga, you should be coming for the quote unquote right reasons, right? Like it's not exercise. It's not. And now my feeling is like, come and you'll get out of it what you're ready to get out of. And maybe that will evolve and change and maybe it won't, but either way, you're welcome. Come yes. be I've, I've actually left studios because of kind of backhanded comments about how frequently you commit and how much money you spend and how, you know, what it shows about your commitment to the practice. And, and I understand that yoga is so much more than the physical poses and uh, that there is a certain level of commitment to it, but let's be real. We all have very full lives and there are some people who are going to dive full in and it's going to be the basis of their lifestyle. And that's beautiful. And then there are other people who are going to use it at times and also have other forms of more movement, also have other things going on in their lives. And, and that's okay too. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think it's really important. I love that you said that it's asana or the physical practice is only one of the eight limbs. And when I think people are welcome, then maybe they have opportunity to be more curious mm -hmm. and they're going to be more willing to explore, well, what are these other limbs? And like, what would it feel like to begin to explore maybe the yamas or the niyamas, right? Those sort of like, you know, kind of moral uh, questionings of how we live our lives in a more attuned and peaceful way. And again, I think that is such a nice, you know, bridge towards how we relate to food in our body. Um, yes. Well, are open to that. Well, it's so similar to how so many of our clients come to us wanting weight loss. And our job is not to say, well, oh, too bad. Don't, you know, just get over it. We're not doing that. It's to meet them where they are, to listen to them, to kind of marry, not really marry what 
what they want with what you're doing, but to just ease them into it. You're not beating them over the head with it. Um, it's so similar when you have something new and scary that's counterculture to what you've been taught. For sure. Yeah. And I think that too, for me as a dietitian, I've evolved so much into that as well, right? Because I think so many of us, of course, were educated in that weight centric paradigm. And then we reject it when we learn about health at every size and intuitive eating. And in that rejection process, I think I became like, almost like, you know, like, this is the, the way. And over time I've softened and said, like, bring it all in, right? Like, let's talk about all of the feelings that you're having. And if part of you is still desiring weight loss and part of you is curious about this other way. Okay. Right. Like eventually we want to try to amplify the part of us that is curious about this approach, but we're not going to say like, there's anything wrong, especially in the culture that we live in for still desiring weight loss. And it might take a long time. And for some people, they might not ever fully, but that again, doesn't mean that they're doing anything wrong. And it certainly doesn't mean as a clinician, we're doing anything wrong. We're creating rapport. We're creating, you know, a hopefully a safe space for people to come in with all of those feelings and recognizing the same way, like we know that the path of recovery or healing is not linear. I think it's important for us as clinicians to remember like, oh, things feel like they're going in this direction and then something happens. And we're Mm -hmm. like, okay, we're not doing anything wrong, right? It is not our job to fix. It is not our job to persuade or to cajole or to, as much as there are times when I'm talking with other dietitians, I was like, I just want to bring people along, right? Then you like resist that, you know, internal reflex and you just, you know, and that again, for as a clinician, I think the grounding and the ability to be embodied, I will notice if something's coming up in my body, if I'm in session with someone and say, okay, that's my, you know, that's my clue. That's my road sign to slow down, to take a deep breath, right. And to come back in, you know, to that relationship with my client, as opposed to being in my head. Absolutely. There's so many things that I want to dig into in that too. And the first thing that made me think of was uh, recently I was in a group supervision session and this topic essentially came up of, you know, people who come in wanting weight loss and um, how do we respond? And, you know, if they say after working with you that they want to pursue bariatric surgery or they want to be on this weight loss medication, et cetera. And um, I shared the story of how, when I started with weight inclusive care, I was very clear about what my approach was and that was helpful, but I noticed something very interesting happening. My clients were afraid to tell me when they wanted to lose weight. They were afraid to be honest with me because they knew how I stood. Um, And it wasn't that I was brash. I'm not a very brash person, Um, but still there was just this wall that they were really afraid to disappoint me or to have me reject them. And I had to learn the hard way that I needed to, yes, be clear, but not be rigid. Um, And I think, again, sometimes we get caught up in that, like, oh my gosh, I know that this is the right thing. I've seen the research. I've seen it with other people. Like, I know what's best for you. And that's, that's a really sticky trap to get caught in. 
Yeah. And I, I agree so much. And it's not that we want to do any sort of bait and switch, right? No. Of course, not. we want to be aligned with our values and the way that we want to practice, but we also want to leave space for, you know, that ambivalence and those feelings that people are having. Um, and, you know, and I think certainly in that outpatient setting, right? Like they are with us, you know, for a session a week, which is, you know, 45 minutes, maybe an hour. And then hopefully they're also with a therapist for that same amount of time. The rest of those hours in a week, they are probably, you know, taking in diet culture, right? And so there's a lot that we're doing and we're unpacking and we're sitting with that discomfort and we're sitting with that discomfort mm -hmm. and we're sitting with that discomfort um, for a long time. And I think that is one of the keys is saying like, there's no rush right now. Certainly if we're working with someone and there's a medical stability issue, that might be a different story. Right. But otherwise, like, you know, I talk about this, this is really a marathon, right? This is not a sprint and this will take you know, as long as it needs to, for people to feel like they are making an autonomous, empowered choice that aligns with their values um, mm -hmm. and move forward that way. Absolutely. And so you mentioned that um, embodiment and mindfulness have helped you as a practitioner become aware in session when uh, maybe some countertransference is happening or um, just things are coming up in you based on the dynamic or the story that's being shared. Um, can you tell me a little bit more about how you either incorporate embodiment and mindfulness either into your work as a practitioner or how you incorporate it into supervision work for other RDs? Yeah. So, I mean, I think the first thing is for each of us, especially those of us who are lucky enough to work in private practice, or at least have some, you know, um, agency over our calendars and our, you know, the way we set up our days is to begin to know yourself and say like, am I the kind of person that needs 15 minutes, 30 minutes, whatever it is in between sessions so that I can come back as my best clinical self. And for me, I've had to learn that I can't really do back-to-backs. I need at least 15 minutes to sort of like clear my head, you know, get off of my chair, physically move my body a little bit, go to the bathroom, get a drink of water, right? <laughs> those sorts of things too, those logistical things. But there's something, and especially if it's a hard you know, session with someone, if you've been holding that space for someone in their grief and their trauma and whatever it is that's coming up for them, like we deserve an opportunity to sort of like allow that to sort of wash off of us in a safe way so that we can come back, right? To our next client. And so I think that's the first thing is asking people to get curious and notice what is coming up for them. What are they noticing in their bodies based just on sort of timing of things? And then what sort of adjustments can we make for that? Yeah. And then also thinking about, okay, what do we need? Are you someone who does need to like have your own, you know, we talk about self-care with our clients all day long. And it's like, are we practicing our own self-care? Yes. Are we you know, recognizing what are our own non-negotiables for me, like, thankfully I have a lab who needs a lot of exercise. Like she gets really edgy and will, you know, eat socks and things if she doesn't get out of the house. So no matter the weather here in Northern New Jersey, like we are out taking a walk. Um, and that is a wonderful thing for me, right? I try to get to a trail so that it's more quiet and I'm not dealing with, you know, with New cars Jersey traffic. <laughs> 
Exactly. Um, and that is a really grounding way for me to start my day, um, whether it's 10 degrees or 98 degrees, and we get all of that here. Um, yes. It's still like an opportunity for me to start my day in an intentional, connected way. Right. And then thinking about where else do I intersperse that throughout my day, trying to be really thoughtful about for me, not spending time on Facebook or Instagram really much in between sessions. Like that can wait till later in the day if that's something that I want to do. Um, but thinking about like, okay, what are the things for me? And, you know, my yoga mat is rolled out in my office now, luckily working virtually, mm -hmm. that's a pretty easy thing to do. So, and sometimes it's like, you know, physically moving a little bit. And sometimes it's just, you know, sitting on my, um, you know, sitting on my mat and just like breathing for a few minutes, putting a hand on my heart and a hand on my belly and using that as an opportunity to come back into myself. Um, and, you know, working with, working with other dietitians in supervision to help them explore that. Right. And for each of us, what is grounding, what is a non-negotiable is going to be different. Mm -hmm. So giving people permission to experiment with that and explore that. Um, and then, you know, also sort of that co-regulation piece that, you know, those of us who do this work, we can recognize when other people are starting to get a little bit, maybe more activated and slowing down our own pace and slowing mm -hmm. down, you know, the, the conversation asking even maybe more, um, you know, insightful questions and reflecting more of what we're hearing from other people can also just subtly, you know, slow everything down in a really nice way too. Absolutely. No, it's, it's so important to recognize how sometimes we are sponges and we absorb the energy of others and, sure. uh, and that has its place. It can lead to empathy, but being able to have that self-awareness to say, is, is this the energy that needs to be reflected back to the person in front of me right now, whether that's another dietitian in supervision, whether that's a nutrition client, um, to say, how can the tone of my voice, the pace of my voice, the way that I use silence or questions be used to, uh, regulate them and, and soothe their nervous system in this moment. Yeah. That's and think, yeah. And I think just being, talking about this as dietitians and giving other dietitians permission to know that they are totally within their scope to do this work with their clients in a safe way, again, a trauma-informed way, um, with tons of permission, right? Anytime that I'm going to encourage a client to sort of like slow down and say like, you know, can we, can, can we do this? Like, do we have permission to, what would it feel like? I always kind of start in that intellectual realm of like, what would it feel like if we were going to do this? And like, what comes up for you when we think about doing this? And then what are you noticing in your body? What is the response before we even do a breath practice or before we even do a grounding practice? Like you want to make sure that, you know, the, the client, while again, there still could be some tension around that, that they are making the choice that they want to do that. Um, yes. And that we're not convincing. We're just saying like, what would it feel like to try this um, with full permission that it might not work? It might not feel good. And it might take time and repetition and those sorts of things. But, of you know, it's, you know, in some ways it's like really beneficial and it can feel scary, but it's really beneficial to just be really forthright with our clients and say, you know what? I've been thinking like that this might be something that would benefit you. What would that feel like? How would you want to engage with that? What kind of things would you need to do in preparation for us exploring something like that. 
Absolutely. And that was going to be my next question with this trauma-informed piece, because I think we hear that a lot, but then the logistics of like, okay, well, what does that mean though? Like, how do you do something in a quote-unquote trauma-informed or sometimes I say trauma-aware way and asking permission is a really important step. Yeah, I think so. And I, you know, I, I think, you know, one of the things that you were saying about your clients who like didn't want to disappoint you or who were sort of scared to tell you things like as much as we want it to be an equal relationship, it's not. Um, And so we have to just come in knowing that. And with that awareness, then we can be really forthright in, in seeking that permission from our clients so that they do feel more empowered and, you know, have the ability to say, this doesn't work for me right now, or I'm too scared to do this. And then we can talk about it. Right. Um, and from that point of view, then, right. Like again, when I used to teach yoga way a long time ago, before I became aware in this trauma, aware informed way, it would sort of be like, okay, well, you know, everyone lie down for Shavasana. Like now totally wouldn't approach it that way. Now Mm -hmm. I would say like, okay, we're going to move towards the end of our practice for you. If it's comfortable, you can get into Shavasana in a traditional way. Let me think about any, you know, props that you might need to make that even more comfortable for your body. If you don't want to close your eyes, you never have to close your eyes. If you want to sit up with your back against a wall, that is a perfectly wonderful way to end the class. Take whatever you need to make this yours. The whole one would hope that many of the reasons that someone comes into a yoga class is to downregulate their nervous system, to feel more connected and feel more attuned. So anything that we can do to help that. And so the same thing, even one-on-one, like, you know, if I'm going to, if someone is ready to begin a breath practice with me, you know, the language is very invitational. Like if it would feel comfortable, you can close your eyes. If that doesn't work for you, just cast them down. No big deal. Right. And you also don't want to create this as like hierarchical that it's better to close your eyes. It's not better, just different. Um, and if someone wants to explore the difference, awesome. If they don't want to, that's totally okay too. They can still get the benefits that we're looking for, right? Same thing. If you want to explore what it feels like to put a hand on your heart, beautiful. If you want to explore what it feels like to put one on your heart and one on your belly, that can be really informative if someone, you know, and then talking about like, oh, nope, doesn't feel comfortable to put my hands on my belly right now. Maybe I'll put both hands on my heart, right? Mm -hmm. And those are, we just, we learn a lot about our clients. I think our clients learn things about themselves. Um, And because ultimately the doing whatever it is that we're doing in session is one thing, but we want people to you know, begin to explore with these things outside of session, you know, so maybe it's before a meal that they're feeling really uncomfortable about, or maybe it's, you know, before a conversation that they're, you know, having some, you know, like activating thoughts around whatever it is, we want these tools to be part of our lives. Um, And so the, I think the only way to really encourage that is to allow the client to make the tools theirs. Yes, absolutely. And this is bringing me back to one of the other uh, questions that I had, which is around grounding practices, because something that I've noticed in working with dietitians is that um, we don't often have kind of a tool chest of grounding practices ourselves. So uh, when my clients are overwhelmed or stressed or uh, feeling very activated, and I'll say, what, what grounds you, what brings you back, what soothes you, 
they don't have a concrete answer. Mm -hmm. So if any dietitian is listening to this and thinking, I have no idea what grounds me, what calms me, what soothes my nervous system, what would be your advice for getting started? Yeah. I mean, ideally I would probably try to bring it back to them and say, okay, so tell me, you know, maybe I would change the language a little bit and say, when you're feeling angry, when you're feeling sad, when you're feeling right, any of these different emotions, are you able to identify that first? And then what do you do about it? Like, what's your natural go-to if you're feeling sad, if you're feeling angry and use that as a starting point. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but then there are people who look at you and they're like, I have no idea what you're saying to me. <laughs> like, I can't even think about that. Right. Because they probably are walking around disembodied and not, you know, connected. So then, you know, again, with permission, I would say, okay, let's think about some things that maybe things that you did earlier in your life that, you know, were you an athlete? Were you an artist? And maybe people still are, which is wonderful, but like, you know, oftentimes as we get into adulthood, we leave a lot of the things that we loved um, in our younger years. And so that can be a beautiful invitation to re-explore, you know, and, come to whatever again feels best but so when people are saying like i want you to give me some suggestions right then we can talk about like getting on a yoga mat doing some simple you know grounding poses and for those of you who are familiar with yoga certainly like a downward facing dog is a really grounding pose right even being on all fours and some cat cow can be a really grounding pose right even just sitting and feeling the sort of like release of your hips and i always put blocks under my knees because i feel like that's really supportive um when i'm sitting all those sorts of things is a great hopefully kind of quicker kind of thing. Now, certainly for a lot of people, it can be taking a walk, but it can also be if you're lucky enough to have some space that you can access outdoors and especially in the weather is nice, like take off your shoes and feel your feet around, Mm -hmm. like really look at a tree, feel the, you know, you can think about that, how the tree has those roots that go deeply into the earth and how, when, even if a storm is coming up, right? Like they might lose a couple leaves or a couple branches, but like if that root center is connected into what we value, what's really important to us, then we can be like that tree and we can withstand, right? Kind of the storms. And so I use that as a visualization, as a way to begin to help people just sort of recognize that within themselves. Um, but again, it could be, it could be an animal in, you know, that it, whether it's a dog or a cat, it could be another person in your life. I mean, I'm the, the one kind of beauty of the pandemic and getting to work at home and virtually is like, you know, I have two teenagers that are around a lot and sometimes it will like, you know, grab them and, you know, have them no permission. I don't, I don't ask for permission to hug my sons. They've never asked for it and they've never, you know, so maybe that would be different, but like they will hug me and that feels great, right? That, that release and that connection. So, you know, all kinds of things. I think it's about um, experimenting and tuning in. Yeah. And having a variety of things. I know that for me growing up, playing the piano was always so Mm -hmm. grounding and just, it, it helped me evaporate everything around Mm -hmm. me. I don't have access to a piano 
especially, you know, even if I had one at my house, if I was working a job that wasn't at home, I didn't have a piano at the supermarket that I used to work at. Um, and, you know, maybe you can't do yoga where you are. So knowing a few different things, are there breathing exercises that you can do without anyone realizing that you're doing them? Can you get outside and maybe you can't take a walk, but you can at least take the fresh air. Um, when I worked in the supermarket, it, it wasn't a really like idyllic location. It was kind of an office park area. Um, there were a few trees, but not a lot. Still getting out of the building and into the fresh air once a day was so powerful for me. Um, so knowing what you have at your disposal and having a variety of things for different situations can also be really helpful. Yeah. And I also think like, think about the tools as dietitians. like if we can practice some mindful eating for ourselves, right? Like mm -hmm. taking that break, enjoying whether it is, you know, a piece of chocolate or an orange or right. Something that I think gives like, you know, sort of stimulates a lot of your senses, mm -hmm. um, can be really wonderful. I mean, it can be your lunch as well, but like taking that time to engage the senses is a mindful activity is a grounding activity for us. It brings us back to the present moment. And so, you know, those are, those are the tools we already have right with us in our toolkit as dietitians. Yes, absolutely. Oh, there's so many other things I want to ask. I knew going into this, I was like, this is, <laughs> this is going to be like a five hour long podcast episode um, because I could talk about this stuff all day. Um, but before we formally wrap up, I, I want to throw in one more thing because it's not often that I talk to another supervisor on the podcast. And I think that that perspective is really beneficial. So um, I really would love it if you could share one thing that you either didn't know about supervision before you experienced it yourself for the first time or started providing it? Ooh, so I'm going to say, first of all, I am so, so lucky. I've been supervised by some amazing people like, you know, Jessica Setnick, right? Um, how lucky, Melanie um, Rogers, Jennifer McGurk, like some, you know, just real unbelievable clinicians. And so I hope that everyone has great, great, you know, people that they get to have supervision with. Um, but, you know, I think when I first thought about supervision, I thought of it as case consultation. Yes. And when I learned that case consultation can absolutely be a piece of it, I'm not suggesting otherwise, but that it's really more about our opportunity to process what is coming up for us. What are all of our feelings? Um, and it's not therapy, right? I think sometimes people get, you know, confused when they hear that piece of it as well. Um, but that is really, it's our time. It is such a gift um, to be able to have that time either one-on-one -on -one or even in a group setting. I mean, I think one-on-one -on -one really gets, you know, to that place. Um, and it can just be incredibly valuable for us to kind of sit with all of our own discomfort that's coming up um, because we are humans and we are sitting with another human and we are often sitting with another human who has a lot going on. That's why they're coming to see us. Mm -hmm. um, and that can bring up many feelings and those deserve a space to be interrogated. They deserve a space with kindness, of course. They deserve a place to, you know, be questioned and to be reflected upon um, and someone to remind us like that 
we're doing a good job, right? Yes. Even, even yes. if we're not feeling that in the moment, right? To help us to see, okay, well, this, maybe I would have looked at a little bit differently, but that, that was awesome, right? Like, how do we, you know, think what, what made you move in that direction and those sorts of things um, can be really beneficial too. I think yes. it's just a really great way to build our competence as clinicians, but ultimately our confidence. Mm -hmm. I couldn't agree more. And it really is so much that opportunity on the one hand to, we know that when something comes up in session or at our work, we can't deal with it. So we push it down. Mm -hmm. We need somewhere to bring it back up again. We can't just keep pushing it down. Um, so having that space is really helpful. And then to have that validation and the normalization of what we're going through, that we're not on an island, the only one struggling or feeling like imposters, that these are normal things or um, other dietitians understand what you're going through. It It's so empowering to have someone who really sees and understands you because as much as our family and our friends love us, um, they, they don't fully get it. Um, and you need someone who does. Yeah. And we were talking about that before we, you know, yes. before we hit record that like our family doesn't really know what we do in session. Right. And rightly so. Right. We're being, you know, we're being safe and ethical yes. for our clients. Um, but yeah, sometimes this work can feel lonely. And so even just that community piece is really helpful. And I think about, you know, really echoing what you just said, whether I am with someone for yoga or whether I'm with someone for more nutrition focused or whether I'm just with someone I care about, like ultimately what we all want in this world is to be seen and to be heard. Mm -hmm. And I think that is the last, you know, kind of word I would say to all clinicians who are questioning kind of like, is this in my scope? Am I okay to do this? What, right? Like if we show up as our best selves, our authentic selves, and we see and hear the person that we are sitting across from, you've done your work. Yes. Amazing. Well, I, I'm telling you, I could keep you here all day um, and keep talking to you, but uh, I have to be respectful of your time. And I think the listeners need a little bit of a break instead of listening to a six hour podcast. Um, so thank you so much for sharing your perspectives and coming on here. I, it's truly a conversation that I, I deeply value. Um, if other dietitians listening really resonated with it, how can they hear more about you? Oh, well, thank you. I really appreciated this too. I love, these are really the things that light me up. So I love talking about them. Um, so I am, I work in a practice um, called Eat With Knowledge, which is up in Nyack, New York, although we're technically virtual. Um, but in that is where I do my one-on-one -on -one nutrition counseling. But I also am part of um, a group called Pursuing Private Practice. And there you can see me for one-on-one -on -one supervision. And we also have a program called Dietitian business school where we help some mentorship program where we help you know newer dietitians or even more seasoned dietitians like really build a private practice and feel like they have all the skills and tools that they need I think what's really special about our group is that we do a lot of supervision and we do a lot of self-care and there's a lot of community work so there's of course the fundamentals of building a business but there's also all of these other pieces and the dietitians in there are so collaborative it's really beautiful to watch that community. It's amazing. Absolutely fantastic. I'll be sure to include all of that in the show notes. So if you're driving on a walk with your dog, whatever it is, we've got you covered. But uh, thank you again, Alyssa. It was an absolute pleasure. Thank you. It was pleasure was all mine. Thank 
you for listening to another episode of the Empowering Dietitians podcast. Your support means the world to me. If you find yourself struggling as a dietitian, I'd love to be able to support you in return. The next cohort of the Empowering Dietitians group program is starting in October and enrollment is open now. This program is uniquely designed to hold space for you as a practitioner. Experience the transformative power of small group support where you can show up each week in all of your messiness and know that your cohort and I will be there every step of the way through the tears, the frustration, the fear, the changes in your career, the wins, all of it. Learn more about this program, which past participants have called life-changing at www.empoweringdietitians.com group. That's www.empoweringdietitians.com group.